0: Welcome to the Cancel This Podcast. Today, I have two very special guests, and we're gonna be talking about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, and it's a subject that might be hard to listen to, and honestly, a lot of people have canceled this subject out because it draws up a lot of pain. Sometimes it draws up a lot of controversy, and at the end of the day, people just sometimes don't want to hear it, but it's something we need to talk about and it's suicide prevention and awareness. My guests are Dr. Daniel Amina and Rick Lawrence. Dr. Amina is a child adolescent and adult psychiatrist and associate medical director of the Amen clinics, a chain of nationally recognized outpatient healthcare clinics that has pioneered innovative techniques in mental health diagnosis and treatment Rick Lawrence is an award-winning author, journalist, cultural researcher, editor, and national speaker. He creates and leads interactive training for church and cultural leaders, parents, and teenagers, and is the creator of a highly innovative and interactive professional online training courses. Dr. Amina and Rick have come together to write an amazing book that I highly suggest each of you pick up. The book is called The Suicide Solution Finding Your Way Out of the Darkness. Dr. Amina and Rick, thanks for showing up and coming to the show. I really appreciate you guys being here.
1: It's an honor to be here, Jason. Great.
2: Thank you very much an honor. Thank you so much for um, allowing us to share in your platform. This is amazing. Thank you.
0: Oh, appreciate having you guys here. Um, Dr. Amina, I'm going to start with you. What was your heart, or what what was placed on your heart, that made you want to write a book about a topic like this?
2: So, so true story. I, I didn't want to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been uh, uh, the topic had actually kind of come up a bit. I work at the Amon Clinics, as you said earlier, a national clinic started by Daniel Amon. Daniel Amon writes a bunch of books, um, healing ADD, change your brain, change your life. He's written a bunch of things that have touched many lives. Um, and with every doc that he works with, he's always kind of trying to get us to write books. And for me, I was like, no, that's not my thing. I I love working with patients. I'm focused on that. I want to continue to grow clinically and such. And he just always would prompt me every so often. And interestingly enough, this top, I mean, being a psychiatrist, being a psychiatrist in practice now for seven plus years on top of the years of training before that, um, I've had to work in this field and see suicidal ideation. We see that so often that it doesn't create a sense of fear anymore in psychiatrists. In some ways, it still does. I mean, obviously, you have to be concerned about it, but it informs how we treat and how we manage, and you start to become good at predicting or seeing and treating and learning about the strategies that help people get out of that that dark hole that they may get into. Now, the skills built up over time, being at the clinic, learning from my patients, learning from other doctors, learning from Dr. Eamon himself, and then this opportunity came up at uh, seven, six years in or so of a potential opportunity to write a book, and for the first time, there was a place in my heart that was open for this idea of writing a book. I was like, well, let's see. the uh I had an opportunity to meet with Rick and then I was sold at at that point. We had a great first conversation about, you know, potentially working together and it was it was pretty much done. I felt like God just kinda laid the groundwork for it. For someone who's not really into writing books, all of a sudden right. now I'm like, let's do this. No, I
0: I hear you. It's funny when uh, I was asked to write my book, it was the same way. I'm like, I don't even know the difference between a noun or a verb. Okay, I'm <laughs> <My> a high school <laughs> dropout. spent has been 22 years on the back of a fire engine. Um, are you sure you really want me to write a book? You know, but again, you know, God, it's the same thing. It's like you put a message on my heart and brought the proper people and mentors above me to kind of prod me a little and and also give me you know some help from some professional writers, too, to to take my stories and turn them into something that can touch people. So that's really cool. Rick, so when you and Dr. Amina first met, what were your thoughts when he brought this uh, book idea to you?
1: So uh, <laughs> Daniel and I met because uh, my agent – introduced us. Um, and he was sort of the matchmaker and, and Daniel knows that, um, previously because of where I live, I live in a high suicide area of, of the country. I live in the Denver Metro area and it has uh, specifically the County that I live in has, uh, one of the highest suicide rates in the country. And so I had school age children moving up through this time. And because of that, I was connected, um, sometimes directly to many, many suicides and also drawn into the aftermath of those and saw what the messaging around suicide was. And over the course of years, I became really restless, discouraged, upset, frustrated Mm -hmm. with the conversation around suicide. It always, and especially when it came to young people, um, young people needed a lot more guidance and direction about how to process shattering thing that happened within their community uh, because where they gravitated to is almost to uh, worship the person who had just committed their uh, taken their own life. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was very little done in the way of actual prevention. I just heard what felt like to me, a lot of cliches and shallow answers to this issue. And I kept thinking that I know from my own experience in being in relationship with people who had suicidal ideation, that, that they were in, in what I would call infected by a destructive narrative that was very difficult for them to get out of. So they were stuck in this rut, in this narrative rut, um, where they played out their role in that narrative. And I started thinking about how Jesus, when he healed people, he was almost always simultaneously trying to challenge their destructive narrative Mm-hmm. and plants uh, a new way of thinking about themselves as he restored them. Physically, he was trying to restore them in a, in a soul way as well. And um, I just developed this. Uh, most of the writing that I've done and the leading that I do and the training that I do all has this phrase in it called Jesus-centered. <laughs> I, I was a general editor of the Jesus-centered Bible, uh, yeah. for instance, among, among many other things that I've done. And so, because I'm so focused on Jesus, I started seeing the way that he interacted with people, offered a way out of the valley of the shadow of death for uh, people who are stuck in this suicidal ideation and a destructive self narrative. So, when Daniel and I met, what Daniel brought that I didn't have, obviously, was all of his clinical experience and his research background into all of this. And what really bonded us together is. we we saw the overlap between our two worlds and how these two worlds were really uh, offering a way forward. Daniel uh, advocated as the tagline for our book. He didn't win, by the way, but he advocated <laughs> for a tagline to our book that was just said, a way to live. And that's actually accurate to what the book is really about. It's a book about suicide and depression, anxiety, but it's really a book about Um, A way to live your life that is modeled after the way Jesus lived his life and the way he interacted with people that then creates a bulwark against that slide into depression, anxiety and suicidality. So the book is is part research, part uh, clinical practice, part menu of possibilities and part um, understanding how Jesus interacted with people and how that impacts our own relationships.
0: Right. You know, it's, you know, I'm brand new into the world of publishing, but one thing I've learned is they want to try to fit everything into a category, right? Everything. What, what's this book category? And and what I love about your guys' book is it fits into so many categories across the board because it's so vulnerable the way that you guys write into it, you pour into it, and then you also bring in the facts backed up by the numbers. So I just uh, give kudos to you guys for that. So Dr. I Mina, mean, there's something I wanted to kind of throw your way. It was many years ago I was responding to a uh, suicidal jumper on the Bay Bridge. And as you know, as first responders, a lot of times we're the first ones there before we can get a trained uh, psychologist or psychiatrist to the scene. And, you know, especially on a bridge with traffic, it can sometimes take a long time to get a doctor there with us this one gentleman I was chatting with, and I've been to multiple attempts. And truthfully, anytime we were called to a suicide, when we got there, it had already been done. So it was like, oh, man, our patients were actually the family members. You know, we, we had to do what we had to do with the, the person who was deceased. But the family members became the ones that we had to console and work with. Well, in this particular incident, I was talking to the guy, and I thought I had quote had him meaning we had a real good connection it wasn't fake you know and as a fireman as we're waiting for the the help to arrive the rescuers that we need to help rescue us during this situation um i've always learned is just to be real and talk with people don't be fake you know just try to try to assess the situation see where they're hurting and then then just speak with them and make that connection and with this gentleman i thought i made that connection And then all of a sudden, he just, his head snapped up and he looked into my eyes and he had just this blank stare and he said, I'm really sorry. And he took a step back and our eyes were just locked as he took the eternal plunge down into the bay. And it was at that moment. The the emptiness I saw inside of him was the darkness that had been eating me up since a childhood because I was raised in an abusive home. And then I became a firefighter at the age of 18 and then dealing with my traumas of my past that I had never cleaned up and then immediately becoming a firefighter as a teenager and dealing with the stress this world. I picked up a piece of every one of those bad responses we went to and they started to weigh me down. And that was the time I started taking my downward fall and started thinking about suicide and going through my struggles. So with that being said, in the fire and EMS world, which is a pretty broad world, I know more firefighters who have taken their lives than have died in the the line of duty, you know, fighting fire and stuff. What is something that firefighters and the community as a whole can do to try to solve this problem? And I know it's a broad question, but, but what are some steps, some basic steps that all of us could take to try to help with this, this devastating problem on our hands?
2: There's so much you just said there that I almost want to respond to even elements of the story you told. Um, I, I, I feel a pain for you and the fact that you had to experience it and see that I, obviously I feel a pain for, for the man who took his life and, um, but even in all that, there's hope, right? Because the fact that we're having this conversation speaks to the journey you've had to get to this point, the journey you've had to move towards healing. So thank God for that. Um, the The element here that's important is that we first start having a conversation. It's literally why you're we have us on your platform right now, right? Is to have this conversation. Um, I actually just recently spoke to a, a firefighter, firefighter at my church who. It was airy because he and I were talking and he had wanted to kind of have a conversation about the, these same topics. And then not too long after that, I heard that we were going to be doing a conversation with you. I was like, wait, do they know each other? How did this work out? But <laughs> he—he's the, the story that you just told there and, and then the, the, the other stat of basically saying that, unfortunately, firefighters and people are first responders – sometimes often more die from suicide than from the actual work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, He mentioned that to me too, right? And mentioned that this is an area of advocacy. So I'm thinking that God is probably wanting me to do something on that at the side. So that's a separate,
0: I'll agree with that assessment doc.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a separate uh, discussion too, but there's, you said it there, there's the people who are attracted and drawn to that type of field that would be willing to be a first responder, There is a way their brain runs. I mean, I'll just get out. There's a way their brain runs that seeks that type of response, that kind of dopamine hit, that kind of their willingness to run towards the fire instead of running away from it. Right. they are people who are built that way. And it gives them particular giftings to go in and save lives and do certain things. But it also puts them at increased risk. Correct. Right. Anytime you expose yourself to those particular things, you're at increased risk. Right. And it's not even just even in the setting of uh, running in to save someone's life and maybe it doesn't go well or however. It's even before that as a child, what was how did that brain run and how did the parents brain run that potentially allowed them to be at risk even as a child? Right. Right. And how yeah. did they process pain and process trauma? Now that trauma eventually can become part of their purpose. that trauma can eventually become part of their motivations. i'm I wasn't able to save myself. I'm going to save others. it can there's all these like deep psychological reasons why we may do things right um, And then unfortunately, in the course of that work, they get injured and, and not only just physically you know like on the body injured, but they'll get hits to the head. they may have falls, they may have other things. And one of the things we we highlight in the book is that you can have hardware based issues that eventually lead to symptoms. So the hardware element here is your your neurobiology, like literally your brain, right? How your brain is running. At the Eamon Clinics, we believe your brain works right, you work right. If your brain, if you're not feeling right, if you're not working right, we should be also thinking about what's happening brain wise, right? So one of the things we do try to push forward in in these conversations, one, have the conversation, two, start doing some of the deep work and going, is this a hardware issue or a software issue? Is there something that's happening in me that needs to be rectified, that needs to be healed? And how do I intentionally go about working on that or working that up in some ways and then eventually treating it?
0: No, that's so good because – you know, I come from a generation of the fire department where it's suck it up, kid, you know, deal with it. And I remember, you know, here I was 18 years old and might go to my first fire and it was a fatality fire. And then we get back to the firehouse and all the old, you know, Vietnam era veteran firemen that we, you know, were in the war and that they all just climb back into bed and I'm looking around the room going, Did you guys were we all part of the same thing here? <laughs> you know, and stuff. And they're like, Shut up, kid, go to sleep. But what you're mentioning, too, is the hardware, and that's what I love about your guys' book is how you and Rick put it in there, is talking about the computers and the hardware and the bugs was a lot of times in our department, we suck down more carbon monoxide than you could ever imagine because – we would, if you had to go back out to the fire engine to change out your bottle, your air supply in your back, well, those bottles only last about 15 minutes when you're truly doing the hardest workout of your life. Well, if you go back out and get a fresh one, you're kind of weak and you're a wimp. So once the fire was knocked down, that was the most dangerous portion of the fire. Uh, Chemical wise, because there's so much grossness in that room, if you will, we'd pull our masks off and I would go back to the firehouse and for three days, I'd have a pounding headache, just feeling horrible and stuff. And it would take away my sleep and all that. So it's kind of in that little bug issue that you're talking about, how bugs infect the the hardware and stuff. Rick, I would like to come over to you because I did notice you poured some vulnerability into this book, too, and talked about some struggles you had, especially during the time in COVID. What was it that helped you or has been helping you through this really tough, dark time we're going through?
1: Oh, thanks for asking that. Uh, I want to backtrack for just a second, and then I'll go forward into that. Um, One thing, I'm really glad Daniel brought up the hardware part of your story, which is the biology side of it. And then you gave an example of it, Jason, of how that hardware can feed into it. There's also a software side, uh, which is our psychology or our soul. You can get bugs on either side. And if you get bugs, enough of them on either side, just like a computer, the computer stops working. And it was fascinating to me in your story about uh, the man on the bridge that you witnessed a trauma, but that narrative that he was living out then got infected in you, mm-hmm. um, coming away from that. And uh, we use in the book, we use the Jesus parable, the wheat and the weeds, to help understand how this works in our hardware and software. He tells the story of a farmer who plants a, a field full of wheat and his and his workers come to him and say hey look somebody overnight planted a bunch of weeds in the field and uh what should we do should we pull it all up and the the farmer says no 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 don't don't pull up the weeds an enemy planted those things there but don't pull them up right now because if you do you'll ruin the wheat wait until it's harvest time and then we'll pull them and harvest the wheat so it, we use this parable that Jesus told to help us understand The reality of what it means to be a human being today. Yes, he's planted wheat in our field, in our soul, but we have an enemy who's also planted weeds there. And for reasons that Jesus understands, he lets those weeds grow um, until it's the ripe time for those to be pulled. But those weeds can eventually overshadow the wheat. And in the book, we talk about those weeds being the destructive narratives that we have embraced in our life. And many of them are necessary for us to survive trauma that we've experienced when we were younger. We will we, uh, we'll, we'll accept a destructive narrative like such as it's not safe to trust anyone because like you, if you were growing up in an abusive home, that helped you to survive that home.
0: I didn't let anyone in whatsoever because it was a single Vietnam veteran dad of mine who was suffering from his own traumas. And so not to cut you out, but just interject there that I would actually just, I shut down as a child. And that's why I actually got thrown out of school when I was in the 10th grade, because I wouldn't let anyone connect with me because it was my safety zone, that it was easier just to shut down, let people say mean things to me and not even bark back. And uh, so you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, and
1: so what you were experiencing is a, a, a strategy, a narrative uh, inside that helped you to survive, then as you grow up, now it becomes destructive. Now it's hurting your life. Now it threatens to overshadow your life. So now is the time when Jesus wants to address the weed that has been growing up in the wheat. And, and if we don't address it, it can overshadow the wheat in the end. And so all of us have this dynamic working within us, that's why the book deals with both uh, hardware solutions to this issue and software solutions. And the thing you brought up about my struggle during COVID, uh, like everyone, <laughs> if you look at the statistics, there's, pro- there's very few people in in the United States who didn't struggle with anxiety, depression, or even suicidality. Uh, one out of four 18 to 24 year 18 to 24 year olds said that they had contemplated suicide in the last month. At the height of the at the height of the pandemic, so a quarter of all young people were thinking about taking their own lives. So uh, I, you know, I wasn't to that extent, but I experienced the same kind of depression and anxiety most people did during that time. And the practice—it was funny because Daniel and I were writing this book in the middle of that, and we were writing a book that two-thirds of it includes practices, healthy everyday living practices that do create a bulwark. Against that slide, so I started practicing some of the things that we were discovering and putting in the book, and now my life has habits that it didn't have two years ago that have profoundly impacted um, my resilience, my outlook, my ability to maintain hope. Um, you know, when we're in the midst of challenge, it's it's affected all of those things. And Daniel, uh, I've gone through a spec scan, and Daniel has met with me to describe my interior reality. So that was really fun. Um, and out of that conversation, too, I'm now taking uh, supplements that I wasn't before that are helping my brain health. And so the two are working together to create a, a wall or a, a, a speed bump is another way of saying it against that downward slide.
0: Wow, that's so good. Well, you know, Just to share with you guys, you know, not to to keep this all about books, 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 and books, but my book released in September of 2020, just, you know, a month before this general election that was pretty hostile negative, right? (laughs) And in the middle of the pandemic where everything was shut down out here in California where I live and nationwide, and it just destroyed me. I mean, it, it was like, here's my book launch happening and then every speaking engagements, everything that was we were going to use to get the word out about this nobody's book was taken away. And I truly found myself in a dark place again, which should have been a happy time. You know, with that being said, I want to slide back over here to Dr. Amina. What happens when these bugs that we're kind of discussing right now, the influences hit us go undetected? What, what, what can happen, man?
2: That's that's like poison. That's actually the worst case scenario there, right? Um, Whether it's a hardware bug or a software bug. And let's just talk about the hardware one really quickly. The carbon monoxide example you mentioned is, is actually extremely important. The toxin exposure one is extremely important because there's people who just live in neighborhoods and homes that are toxic, Right. There, there's, there's actually been some particular stats on the, the, the likelihood of mental illness um, in relation to how close you live to some kind of toxic waste dump or, or if you have a poor air, air, air pollution in your region, the, the increase for depression, anxiety, or, or problems with, with focus or attention. So just think about that. Like the neighborhood you live in can impact your mental health. Now, that's even separate from, what else you may have going on in your neighborhood, right? If if there's a little bit more violence there, if there's a little bit more poverty there, just the, the, the air you breathe, the water you drink. We've seen stories about that, right? Some people drinking very toxic water for them. And we actually see that at the aiming clinics because we do these brain scans. You can see really unhealthy brains. And since, again, I've seen firefighters' brains, I know that carbon monoxide, falls, head injuries, whatever, in at work or even prior to starting a job, impacts how well that brain turns on. And if your brain works right, you work right. If your brain isn't working right, then it's harder to process the world around you. It's harder to come up with the right answers to whatever that stressor, that situation is. Now, the other point that that Rick has already talked about is just this idea of, unfortunately, in life, we can pick up a narrative, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves Right. Are we the hero of the story? Are we the victim of the story? How, how, what is that story? And the challenge with it is that we can unintentionally start living that out. If, if I believe I can't trust anyone because I've been injured and hurt in the past, okay, that protects you. But at a certain point, it limits the kind of relationships you can nurture. And frankly, it even changes the way you interact with others. So other people go, well, maybe I can trust you too. And any disappointment that comes up in a relationship, the brain can actually get to a point where it only seeks the evidence to support its current viewpoint. Now, that's already happening in our general society at this point, right? If you have a particular viewpoint, you only look at the evidence that supports yours and you discount everything else against it, right? But we do that on the daily, even with that self-narrative. So if there's a narrative that says, I am faulty, and it's back there deep in there, then people look for evidence to say, yep, here's another time I failed. Here's a point of criticism someone said. I'm going to hold on to all of these. And if they have a point of success, something goes well, the, their brain goes, eh, wasn't that important. They discount it. You, you will go to say to them, what about this? And be like, what? I don't even remember that. You're like, you just happened. You just did that. How can you not remember that? But unfortunately, that's what can happen over time that the brain can in some ways, support a destructive narrative. And you think, why would it do that? Well, as, as Rick was saying, it protected you at one point. It actually came with benefit at one point. Now, the challenge here is if you don't know about either of those two, two things, if you don't know that there's a hardware-related stuff that may have been going on with you, you don't even know the story you're telling yourself, and you're just going living through life through default, then you, you, you become reactive. And then when struggle happens, then what do you do? You blame self. You blame self, You blame others. You don't become proactive to work towards finding solutions. You get to a space where you feel disempowered. When you get disempowered, that's an extremely dangerous state, especially if you get into depression, anxiety, and as a mix of other stressors coming on. At a particular point, your brain will convince you that there is no solution but to take your life. You're listening to the Edify Podcast Network.
0: We'll be right back. Welcome back. What what you're saying here is just, I I mean, my my mind's like just exploding right now because I was born and raised in a small inland Southern California town in a, in a quote, all white community, if you will. And you know, it doesn't make me racist. doesn't make anything horrible, but in this community, we all just kept to ourselves. Any problems you kept to yourselves. And then I become a fireman. And I land in a firehouse three doors down from where the Black Panther Party started. And I'm the only white dude on an all-black crew. But check this out. This is why I actually started idolizing the fire department more than I should was because my brothers, they took me in and they were the first people that ever cared for me. They would selflessly put me above themselves and i'd never had that before and, and and vice versa i'm like dude these guys will die for me i'll die for them none of us look alike and stuff but it's the first time i ever felt like true love but what was crazy is again you were talking about you know the dopamine response i never want to see anyone's house burned down I worked in a neighborhood where we went out the door for at least 100 murders a year. And that doesn't even count the the assaults where people didn't die, which was probably, you know, maybe one out of every 10 assaults we went to was where there was a fatality. So you could just imagine the stuff that the, the wickedness that I witnessed. And then we also lived in a neighborhood where Silicon Valley is where they created everything. West Oakland's where we stored all the toxic dumps for it and stuff. We had all the old metal plating shops and there was a fire that I went to where I actually fell into one of the vats, you know, and this was a super fun site and I came out. I remember I tasted metal in my mouth for about three weeks afterwards and stuff. And, and so, and so where I'm going with this is after a while, even the love of my brothers, the love of going to fires, the emptiness and what I call the black hole inside of me tore it up and eventually, I had nowhere to go, and I was sitting in the pit of hell, and I couldn't see happiness. I couldn't feel happiness. Guys at work, they didn't even know till I wrote my book that I almost committed suicide because I had became a professional of faking happiness. I'd be that guy. I explain like this. Everyone inside Disney and "Ah, having fun and everything. Well, I'd be smiling up a storm, but I was not a fishbowl. I didn't feel an ounce of fun. Even to this day, I don't get joy out of the little things. I get joy out of seeing other people happy and other people doing things. And that brings me joy, you know? And people are like, well, dude, that's kind of unhealthy. I'm like, well, it's all I got, really. But what the beauty about it is is it wasn't until I found the true love of God and Jesus pulled me out of that pit of hell that that my head started to clear up and I got clarity. And I actually reached out to medical help, but I'll be honest with you, and I'm not shooting anything down here. The medical help I reached out to didn't work. I met with a physician for an hour, then they gave me an antidepressant pill. And all that pill made me do is want to go home and do nothing, not even pay my bills. So I just stopped taking it, you know? so, So with that being said, I'll throw it out to both of you. Do you guys sometimes see, and not shooting anything down, but do you sometimes see poor treatment in the area of people that are dealing with the depression at such a severe level that they're thinking of suicide?
2: So, so Rick, I'm sorry, but if you don't mind, I'll just, Go I'll take this first and then you jump in because you, I know you have some particular thoughts on this, but literally this is, this Jason, this is why I work at the clinic I work at. Um, most of our life's concerns and issues aren't solved by a pill, okay? Uh, Most of the mechanisms of those pills are single mechanism to improve something. Now, if it's that particular pathway that needs to be worked on, then great. But most things, most problems, we get to a particular problem from multiple pathways. There's multiple dynamics that impact someone's current set of symptoms, when you reached your point where you felt I can't go forward or maybe I shouldn't go forward it was a mix of things it was because you fell down that vat and had a little bit of metal on you it was because of any of the falls any of the injuries the carbon monoxide there it was because of your trauma it was a mix it was also not just trauma before you started work but trauma in the work even your ability to when you connected with that individual and you jumped all of that added up to that particular moment so to take one pill to fix all of that is just right. not that's not how it works right and and i think that's some a uh, disservice we 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 have in the mental health field is that we can sometimes try to re- reduce it all down to which pill you take and maybe it's just a different pill um, the work the, in the work of i'm um, doing and what i've learned is that We have to think of it holistically. We have to think of it in multiple spheres. We talk about it in the framework of something called bio, psycho, social, spiritual. So the biological, that's the hardware stuff we're talking about. Where Mm -hmm. is your hardware? Are we really considering all variables that may impact your hardware? You may go to a doctor and they say, hey, yes, we are considering some of those variables, but they might not fully consider those variables. How are you eating? Did you have a head injury? Have you been exposed to toxins? What's your gut health like? What infectious process have you dealt with? Those are poison for the body and the brain, and it can impact how you work and how you think, right? That is a huge sphere of things beyond just taking that one medicine. Now, it doesn't mean that one medicine can't help, but it's only going to be a particular portion of a a complete treatment plan. And then the psychological piece we've just been talking about, the narrative piece. If there's been no change in internal narrative, if there's been no growth there, if there's been no analysis there, um, you just continue thinking the same way you've taught, you, you've thought, and then with slightly different neurochemical balance, mm-hmm. right? And maybe that gives you a little bit of a bump in, in, for for a couple of weeks, a month, a year, two years, whatever it is. But if you're thinking the same way that you've thought, even if we've changed up your neurochemical balance, you'll eventually end up the same same way. You just kind of like teach your brain that this is what it is now. I give the example: it's like if you always overeat. Then, like, let's you know, when you order a meal, you just always overeat, and you need to feel kind of uncomfortable. That will become your new judgment of what full feels like, right? Right. So you you've, you've trained yourself into that. So if you have unhealthy eating patterns, then you trained yourself into that, and that would become your your consistent eating patterns. Same thing. Even if you give you the right supplement, the right med, if you still think the same way, you'll eventually just still kind of end up back where you were at. So bio, psycho, social, it's your environment, whatever you right. can do to manage in, that environment, how you connect them with others, and then the spiritual or the purpose element of life. That's the biggest thing, right? When you, you your, your purpose was identified, when God spoke over you and said, this is what, Jason, I've, I've called you to do these things. You are a life saver, You're a life giver. You bring joy. You can bring joy to others. That is your role and you can connect. When when that is so clearly defined by God plus anything else He has already told you, um, that gives you a sense of purpose too. And then now that moves you forward, probably even sometimes more powerfully than any of the biopsychosocial stuff. Right. If you have that level of purpose, so no. Uh, it, I, 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 my, my last thing on this is just, yeah, you're absolutely right. We can never just reduce it down to one one pill, ever.
1: You know, one, one little P.S. here, too, that uh, it's I think is a helpful metaphor that Daniel and I use in the book. That our biology, our hardware, uh, if there's a bug in it, as Daniel has uh, described multiple different ways that can happen, that's like a headwind that's always in your face. It's not that you can't overcome the headwind, but if it gets hurricane-level strength, then it's hard to move. It's that point at which, uh, Jason, you found yourself where it, when you got on the med, the, the the help for your biology actually created more headwind for you, right. and you just stopped moving. So uh, the biology part of this is to address the strength of the headwind in your life, to somehow diminish that headwind, to make way for our own agency. What I mean by that is if you look at how Jesus interacted with people, he always adjusted the way he interacted with them to to account for the level of agency they had. So why did he uh, stop the blind man by the side of the road and spit in the dirt and smear mud on his eyes and then say, hey, blind man, go find your way to the pool of Siloam alone outside the gates of Jerusalem. And once you wash there, then you'll be healed. Because he could have done it in the moment. I think he did it because he saw this man needed an exercise of his own agency in his life. He needed to participate in his own healing. And so Jesus gave him away. Uh, whatever happened to you, Jason, when you, when you encountered Christ and then made the decision to move further down that path in relationship with him was your agency. It mm-hmm. was your choice. He didn't force you. He didn't choose ahead of time. You have no choice, Jason. This is what's going to happen in your life. There was agency involved, but not everyone has the same level of agency. Some people have no agency left at all and they need outside help. Like when the, when the friends of the paralyzed man dropped him through the roof in front of Jesus, that man had no agency to walk through that crowded room to get his healing. So his friends were his agency for him. They dropped him down to the floor in front of Jesus. So. You see Jesus interacting with people in this mm-hmm. way to account for their agency because he always wants to, us to have the dignity of participating instead of just doing for us. So the agency part is if you can reduce the headwinds, now what are some uh, some possibilities on the other side of this where you can exercise your agency in your own health? Because he is not going to stand in your life and flip a switch that makes everything better because that's not how things work in the kingdom of God. He wants to do stuff with us, not for us. I guess is a good way of saying
0: it. That's so good, you know. And and you know, my conversion is it it runs through a bunch of series of dealing with some really rough calls on fire scenes that I couldn't explain to myself. And you know, then I met this really beautiful girl who's a Christian who threatened to dump me unless I didn't go to church with her. (laughs) So people like, "Whoa, what's the story there?" I'm like, "Dude, I went to church with her. What do you think? Come on now." But what what I loved about it, and it kind of goes with your story there, is my you know she's been my wife now for 18 years. Was I saw a glow out of her, a true glow, something so much more beautiful than the beauty of this world, even though my wife, you know, physically is the most beautiful woman to me in this whole world. But there was something coming out of her that I wanted more of. And once I sat down, I spoke with a pastor who actually really offended me because he told me where goodness came from. I'm like, yo, dude, no, I'm good. Okay. I'm responding to people. I have awards hanging on my walls. I have the Medal of Valor for pulling some folks out of a fire. And he's like, no, those, those are good things. But until you recognize that those skills, those everything was given to you by God and goodness comes from above and into you, and then you pour out of you and you give recognition to him, he's like, until that point, Jason, I don't think you're going to find true happiness. And it, as much as that offended me, you know, like, wait, it, it resonated with me. And then long story short, I was in a fire that I got trapped in. And I I thought I was a goner. I thought I was dead. I mean, my my legs were starting to catch on fire. I was alone. I had no hose line there. And that's when I just remember all the stuff became real, like – all the darkness I lived in, in my past actually became like eternal at that moment. All the pain that I was starting to feel as my legs were blistering became eternal at that moment. And when the guys came in to rescue me and they pulled me out, that was the moment where I it was like the wah moment. The heavens opened up and Jason Saba is like, this is real. I'm all in. And And, you know, the conversion happened and the conversion is still happening, you know, until the day I'm called home. But what you were throwing in there is so true because I am a true believer that I believe in the same science as an atheist. I believe in the same science as an agnostic, as someone who follows a different religion. But what I say is if it's not grounded in Christ, it won't work. And I stand behind that based off of testimony and truth. With that being said, with followers of Christ and just anyone right now who is truly struggling right now, I'll throw it out to both of you. What are some simple practices they can just fall into to try to start feeling better in these dark times? Daniel, why don't you go first and, and then I'll go?
2: So, the, the simple practices, these are the things I actually tell the clients I work with. Um, uh, these times dis- can unfortunately lead us to being disempowered. I mean, we all unfortunately have gotten caught in doom scrolling, just rolling, you know, scrolling through our phones, looking at one bad news story to the next bad news story. Watching the news about the world is ending, basically from whichever political point of view you're in. Right, uh, there, there's different reasons why the world is ending, but uh, um, I, I try to. My, my focus is obviously to 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 empower them and bring them to these principles. I call the four C's. Um, they're they're much more proactive, um, and they're more centered on self and what is in your sphere of control. Okay. Um, I, I, I start with uh, C number one is how are you connecting with others around you? OK. Um, it, and even even for my my clients who, who, who are claimed, you know, introverts, there's still an amount of connection that's important. For my extroverts, who need a lot of connection. They really struggled through, through COVID, right? I had some of my introverts initially the first couple of months of COVID. They were like, oh, this is, I was born for this. I'm okay. <laughs> but even them, as it went further and further and and they were they had more isolation and there was more of that doom scrolling, it started to harm them. Mm-hmm. Connecting good quality connection, right? Where you feel heard, where you feel understood, where you feel like someone sees you. That needs to happen. If you're an introvert, at least once a week. For an for an extrovert, they might need it twice a day. Right. Okay. And and each person needs to know themselves. And the challenge here is if you need to connect but you don't trust others. Ooh, that's a tough situation, right? So being able to recognize, okay, I have that internal narrative that it keeps me from trusting, but I still need to connect. How do I do that safely? The the next one is is creativity. Um, it's one of the ways to channel some of that emotion in our, uh, our emotional brain into something. It's actually another way to help us feel empowered. It's one of the reasons why um, people did more gardening uh, during or even fixing up their house during the pandemic. Filling an area of of empowerment would naturally decrease some of their anxiety and, and depression, right? Um, so a creative outlet, if you're in a music, it's music. If you're in an art, it's art. Actually, I, I overly emphasize this point at times because for my clients who, who have those creative brains, mm-hmm. they feel more. Right. So if they have a trauma, they feel it more. Right. If they, if there's something positive or good in their life, they feel, feel it more. But if there's something negative, they unfortunately feel it more also. So I always need them to have that creative outlet. The next one is part of what you do too. Is is just you contribute. You find some ways to contribute to your community around you. You're contributing in some ways. That could be a volunteer opportunity. That could be even just saying, you know, to a friend, or let's go on a walk together. Let's do something together. It could be starting a podcast. It could be whatever, whatever the thing is for you. Um, but Shifting that focus from self and my situation and what I can't deal with or what's not good about me to shifting it external to a focus also can be helpful in de- decreasing depression and anxiety. The I'm last in total, one,
0: total agreement with that.
2: Yeah, the last one is cultivating um, a lifestyle of wellness. This is the intentionality piece, right? St- stop living by default. Um, start thinking about when should I wake up? How should I eat? How should I exercise? Do I need to learn a little bit more about the brain and body? Yeah, that doc was talking about that toxins can impact you. I've had some, I've hit my head. I've been exposed to stuff. Am I doing anything about that? Oh, the doctor told me that I have sleep apnea. Am I treating that? Yeah, sleep apnea, treat it. It hurts your brain real bad. It hurts the hardware of your brain. It will impact how you you feel, right? Basic things like that. But then also cultivate that healthier interior narrative. After anybody who hears this, I want them to start thinking, what's the story I tell myself about myself? And do I like the story? Can I change the story? Is the story yeah, true? Yes, so you can't change it. Is the Is story, the story true? even true? Right? And what, what, what would God think of this story? Right? What kind of story would, would God tell of me? And can I live into that story?
0: I like that that's great Rick what kind of advice could you throw out from a personal standpoint and also a professional standpoint that that? Uh, I, I,
1: I love how Daniel sets up the these four C's and then the last part of our book is just like uh, I think it's six or seven or eight different chapters that express ways of living that out in a menu of possibilities uh, the the first one that uh, that in that lineup is about engaging the body and this is gonna sound funny but but um, Jesus promoted holy living with a wh (laughs) we think of h holy living but he promoted holy living meaning body soul mind and spirit all of those in a healthy uh uh, in a healthy computer the hardware and software is working well when all those so uh we think of jesus as a carpenter but he was actually Mm -hmm. most likely a stonemason because that was the building material if you look at the word that is translated carpenter it's tecton which really is a stonemason. So right. Jesus, for 30 years, worked a very hard physical job. Um, the, most historians and, and theologians believe that Jesus likely, in his lifetime, walked 21,000 miles, the wow. circumference of the earth. Um, so he was a physically active, aggressive man. And in fact, in those uh, interchanges he had with the Pharisees, the Pharisees were probably scared of him physically, too because he was a a very physically active person, I'm saying this to say Jesus lived a life that had a high degree of engagement with his body physically. So what does that mean for us? It means that the way that we engage our body in our everyday life contributes to our whole health. It's not just about eating right and um, losing a few pounds. It's about how do we live in such a way that is holistic, the way Jesus modeled. So we have a bunch of ideas about ways, uh, creative ways you can engage your body that are non-traditional as well. Um, and ways that you can eat things that that you might not have known actually help build up a bulwark in your brain against this slide towards suicidality. So if we're thinking about um, body engagement, a simple thing that you've probably heard before is just simply walk more, sit less. We've heard this mm-hmm. a lot. But it isn't just about our physical health when we say that. That contributes. There's a connection, a deep connection between our physicality and our psychology. So if we walk more and sit less, especially if we walk more outside Mm -hmm. in nature, you have a whole section Mm -hmm. on all the research behind what happens to you when you're in nature, physically, biologically. Um, if you do some of these simple shifts, these simple tweaks in the habits of your life, you'll start to see these incremental changes in how you see yourself and see the world and see others. And they happen to match the way Jesus lived his life and promoted whole living to others.
0: That is so good. Gentlemen, I, I so appreciate you guys on so many levels and jokingly, but not too jokingly said. I just feel like I got my own little uh, counseling session there. So, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm not sending a check though, okay? <laughs> no, but, but seriously, you guys, the the wisdom, knowledge, and experience that you just poured out there – I know for a fact, is going to bless so many people. And I just want to highlight once again for everyone out there listening right now, pick up their book, The Suicide Solution, Finding Your Way Out of the Darkness. And Dr. Amina, what was your tagline for the book? (laughs) A Way to Live. A Way to Live. I love that too. Okay, so my friends, again, The Suicide Solution, Finding Your Way Out of the Darkness. It's a great way to show you how to live the way that God wants you to live. All right, gentlemen, where can we find this awesome book?
1: Everywhere. Um, You can find it most easily on Amazon, but any bookstore, uh, Christian or mainstream,
2: has it as well.
0: Perfect. And Dr. Amina, if people want to connect with you via social media or websites, where could they find you?
2: Um, I'm I'm getting comfortable with the, the social a little bit, so I'm. No, a, you're not. I can hear it in your voice, <laughs> doc, Come right. on, even though you're. A, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> See,
0: there's a fireman slide to me. Okay, I'm I'm a mini I'm psychologist
2: like, over here. <laughs> no, you, you you actually are. <laughs> uh, no, the it's at Doc Amina MD, uh, 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 uh and Instagram. So at Doc Amina MD, and uh, uh, and you can also find me on the Amin Clinics website too. So amonclinics.com.
0: Perfect. And Rick, where can people find you and your awesome podcast? Yeah,
1: I'm on, on at Rick Skip on Twitter. I have a podcast called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. If you look that up, wherever you get your podcast from, I know it's a strange long name, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. There's a reason for such a long name, but uh, that's a podcast I've been hosting for seven years now. You can find that and, uh, or you can go to ricklawrence.com.
0: Great. All right, gentlemen. I mean, seriously, we could continue on and on with this conversation. I have a feeling there's going to be a time in the future where our paths are going to cross again so we can talk some more about this uh, subject. Folks, what I want you to remember is, you know, I like to engage the cancel culture, but don't cancel yourself. And I'm not saying that in a cheesy sort of way. Do not cancel yourself. Don't let other people cancel you. Look to God. God for who you are and check out this amazing book. If you're going through some tough times or even if you're not just so you can help those around you. Thanks for listening. My friends have a great day.